Tonight, I would like to talk about freeing the heart and mind of the hindrances. Or maybe more realistically, working skillfully with the hindrances. Over and over, the teachings state our true innate being is Buddha nature. The American Dzogchen Lama Suryadas says, we are all Buddhas, but we are sleeping. Sleeping Buddhas, awaken. What is it that keeps us from recognizing our true nature, that which we are? What keeps us from awakening to it? Why is it that we can hardly believe that we are already Buddhas? On the deepest level, it's ignorance. It's not understanding reality. It's not understanding of who we are that keeps us in bondage. On the more obvious level, it's the manifestations of ignorance known as the five hindrances. It is these five hindrances in our hearts and minds which over and over again in many ways create trouble for us. That's what I'd like to talk about tonight. I think almost everyone who has spent even a little time in meditation is somewhat familiar with them or very familiar with them. Their sense desire, wanting, their ill will, aversion, hatred. Then it's what's called sloth and torpor, tiredness, drowsiness. Number four is restlessness and worry. And number five is skeptical doubt. These five are the properties that impede heart and mind, or torment heart and mind, and cloud and blur uh, clear vision. And whenever even one of these hindrances is active in our mind, we're unable to develop steadiness or concentration, or unable to see and recognize reality, the true nature of things. And this, of course, gets even more impossible when the hindrances get to us in the well-known and quite popular multi-pack. Restlessness and sleepy and irritated because we're restlessness and sleepy and full of doubt all at once. It's when we try to remember what on earth moved us to come to this retreat and we don't remember Buddha gave an illustration which gives us a good idea on how these different hindrances work. He compares the heart and mind to water, the body of water in different conditions. So sense desire is like a body of water that has various colors mixed 
to it. So it looks nice, very attractive. Ill will, aversion, hatred is like boiling water. Sloth and torpor, tiredness, is compared to stagnating moss-covered water. Restlessness and worry is similar to water that is agitated and moved by the wind. And skeptical doubt is like murky, muddy water. With that kind of water, we won't be able to contemplate the reflection of the sky and the clouds reflected on the surface. And it'll be impossible to look through this kind of water and see all the way to the ground. Similarly, our hearts and minds, when tormented by the hindrances, will be quite unable to experience any clarity, insight, or serenity. On the other hand, it's fascinating and also inspiring to see that the water itself never really gets contaminated by the varied colors, by the boiling, by the moss, by the agitation or the murkiness. And in its true nature, in its essential nature, it always remains clear water. As soon as it cools down, as the colors and the mud settle, the wind and the waves subside, the water again is pure and clear as ever. And in that exact same way, it's with our mind. A calm, mind gets collected, and all the stuff starts to settle. We can't force it. And I think this illustration shows that forcing wouldn't make sense and isn't possible. We need the patience and the perseverance and allow things to settle. And we get back to the original clarity of the mind. The archetype of the struggle of the human mind with these often threatening forces is the battle against Mara. Mara, the personification of these unwholesome forces. The battle which the future Buddha fought before his final awakening in Uruvela or Bodhgaya under the Bodhi tree. Joseph Campbell, in his book Hero with a Thousand Faces, describes this struggle in poetic mythical imagery depicting the gigantic forces at play here. The Bodhisattva placed himself with the firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree on the immovable spot and straightway was approached by Mara, the god of craving, hatred, and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 
12 leagues before him, 12 to the right, 12 to the left, and in the rear as far as to the confines of the world, and nine leagues high. The the protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved. Whirlwinds, rocks, thunder and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands and fourfold darkness the antagonist hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gautama's ten perfections of wisdom, kindness, patience, perseverance, so forth. Mara then deployed desire and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants. But the mind of the great Bodhisattva was not distracted. The god finally challenged the Bodhisattva's right to be sitting on the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily, and bit the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees paying respect to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed and the gods of all the worlds scattered scattered garlands. Our struggle with Mara, with the hindrances and temptations of our heart and mind, is usually not as dramatical, but at times not less difficult given the fact that perhaps we're not quite so realized bodhisattvas as was Gautama, Prince Siddhartha, at that time under the Bodhi tree. Now I'd like to look at each one of these hindering properties or qualities of the heart and mind. Sense desire, one thing. The restless sense of needing something which we don't have. We look towards the outside of ourselves to find satisfaction. And satisfaction means a state of mind in which this restless, agitating feeling of desire is still, is fulfilled again, and has ceased. And where we're content, at peace again with what is. And we hope to get this state of mind through or from the right person, from property, from new acquisitions, from food, from sex, from TV programs, from movies, from music, certain activities, tasks or missions or roles. Or if all this doesn't work, we try meditation, our last hope. 
in short, we try to get this from one of the only six possible experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, bodily sensation, or feeling, thinking. Or a multi-pack of these. Desire is a feeling of inner poverty. What we are, what we have right now, is not enough. Yet, what we so very much wish for is exactly that feeling, to have enough, to be content, to be fulfilled. And yet, unfortunately, none of these people, of these things, of these experiences, have the power to fulfill us in this way because they're all subject to change, to impermanence, and are ultimately outside of our control. Things, people, situations can fulfill us for a moment, and that fulfillment lasts for usually a relatively short moment, but it doesn't stay. But the search remains endless, and we remain unfulfilled. As George Bernard Shaw said, there are two great kinds of disappointment in life. One is not to get what one wishes, and the other one is to get what one wishes. It's the feeling of desire, of craving, of attachment, that actually is highly unpleasant. In our ways of speaking, we do say things like, he's burning with desire, And it certainly doesn't sound very cozy or restful. Often we mistake the pleasant thing or object or situation or person we crave for with the desire itself, and then we think desire itself is pleasant. Very helpful to really look in one's mind and heart. If we do get the thing, it probably will be pleasant for a while or for a moment. But desiring something, especially when we sit in this hall in meditation, desiring something out there that we definitely are not going to get, even after the bell ring, maybe we won't get it. It's so painful. So to see, really, to look really into how desire feels and get a sense of that um, feeling of poverty, of neediness, Now, before I want to look at ways of dealing with these hindrances, I'd like to present first the other four. The second one is ill will, aversion, hatred. It's simply the reversed inner movement from wanting, from desire. It's the mind which tries to get rid of the undesired, undesirable person, the unwanted situation, the unpleasant things, maybe knee pains or restlessness or neck pain or whatever, or the troublesome noises or sounds or words, the unpleasant feelings. In short, trying to get rid of the unwanted sights, sounds, smells, tastes, sensations, feelings, or thoughts. Trying to change them, to suppress to deny or to destroy them if necessary and possible, to get them out of our world. 
whatever way possible. We, we do this through hatred, ill will, and irritation, anger, boredom, judgment, condemnation. And this too, in a way, is a hopeless undertaking because all things in existence follow their own laws, mostly lie outside of our control. And acting out of aversion and hatred towards others usually produces the opposite effect from the one wished for by us. It's very rare that you, you know, angrily tell somebody, you know, what you think of them, and they say, oh, right, yes, exactly, you know, I, I, I didn't realize, but you're right. It's very rare. Also, this state of mind and heart is simply painful, even unbearable. So we have desire or wanting, ill will, aversion. Number three is sloth, torpor, drowsiness, tiredness. It's this well-known feeling of sleepiness. In a meditation, we wish to sink or fall over, turn off the mind to lie down, fall asleep. We're without energy, without enthusiasm, drowsy, heavy, tired, exhausted, or lazy, indolent, and uninspired. And I think it's quite obvious that in this state we're unable to find steadiness or focus unable to experience insight, to see things clearly. So, again, desire, wanting, then aversion, then drowsiness. Number four is restlessness and worry. It's the agitation in heart and mind, which often very directly also manifests in the body, being worried, excited, anxious, brooding, or feeling sorry. Just as a monkey jumps from tree to tree, the mind jumps from object to object, scattered from thought to thought. Feelings are confused. Clarity and steadiness seem quite far away. Like during the sitting, we have been peeking at our watch five times, or we try to see, you know, maybe (laughs) figure out whether, you know, we're going to ring soon or it's another half an hour. We watch, look upstage, you know, maybe they've fallen asleep or something. They've got to ring the bell, and it happens, actually. It's a state of mind that seems quite unbearable. State of mind that is certainly not wholesome or helpful. A desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness. <clears throat> Number five, skeptical doubt can appear to be rather harmless. And yet all of a sudden, it can put us out of combat. It can paralyze our practice. 
we find ourselves packing before we realize what's going on. Skeptical doubt is defined as a mental factor which in and of itself vacillates back and forth between two possibilities. We're startled, bewildered, unable to make decisions, pulled and pushed by doubt, skepticism, and indecision. We have doubts about ourselves. We doubt our capabilities to do or to complete what we set out to do. We open our eyes and look around, and everybody sits so quietly, you know. I'm sure they're all enlightened already, except me. Everyone must have done this for years. I can't do it, doubting ourselves. We have maybe doubts about the teachings, the practice, the meditation. Again, we look around and we see, you know, this dumb, unnatural sitting. You know, people look like vegetables here. Can't possibly be any good. I should have gone to this workshop for expressive dancing or, you know, the tantra course in on the Bahamas or something. <laughs> we have doubts about the guys sitting up front. You know, actually, they don't wear you no know, spiritual costumes. Actually, they don't even have titles. You know, there's no Swami or Rinpoche or Ma or something. They can't even sit on the floor, two of them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> can't be for real. Doubt, when unrecognized, has the power to block our practice, block any understanding, even has the power to make us leave the retreat. Doubt was Mara's last temptation, his last attempt to shake the future Buddha's determination when he contested the Bodhisattva's right to sit on that spot under the tree. So we can see, not only do these hindrances prevent collectedness, steadiness, and insight, not only do they deceive, torment, and paralyze the heart and mind, but they're also very unpleasant. In addition, they create predominantly karmically unwholesome states, and thus they reinforce our unwholesome tendencies and cause painful experiences in the future. And yet, these hindrances are not bad in any way or or evil or even sinful. Rather, they are simply highly disadvantageous qualities, both for ourselves and for others. The question is, how do we relate to, how to deal with these hindrances? The question is not, how can we get rid of them immediately? or soon. The first point, prerequisite for a skillful way of relating to them, is, of course, recognizing them. Clearly recognize them for what they are. Oh, right. Now there's doubt in the mind. Or now irritation is rising. Oh, now irritation is really strong. Oh, now irritation is fading. Now, no more irritation is present. It's really interesting to 
be mindful long enough also to see that something has ended. Just at, as it is said in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's great discourse on mindfulness, is how does a monk or a meditator abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects, such as the five hindrances? And the Buddha very often spoke to the monk, so I leave the he in this case here. <clears throat> he goes on, here, if sense desire is present in him, he knows sense desire is present in me. When no sense desire is present, he knows no sense desire is present. He knows when ill will, aversion is present. He knows when ill will, aversion is absent. When sleepiness is present, when restlessness and worry or doubt is present, thus he contemplates this phenomena arising, thus he contemplates this phenomena passing away, and thus he is mindful and aware just to the extent necessary for insight. Insight into the nature of these phenomena arising by themselves when conditions come together and also disappearing again when conditions fall apart. And I think what is important for us here is not only to hear what has been said, but also to realize what is not being said here in this um, teaching. For example, it doesn't say, thus he fights against sense desire. Thus he desperately struggles with drowsiness. With strong willpower he suppresses worry and restlessness. Pitilessly, he judges and condemns aversion in himself. It doesn't say that. Rather than this, it says, he knows when ill will is present. He knows when no ill will is present. Thus, he abides contemplating phenomena such as ill will in their arising, in their passing away. Of course, it also doesn't say he gets lost in ill will in the thoughts, in the drama of ill will. doesn't say he tries to get rid of ill will. So what we practice here is certainly not easy, but incredibly simple. See, feel how it is right now. Period. For this we need awareness. We need mindfulness and presence. That's really the key, as always. And we need a gentle, non-judgmental, equanimous mindfulness, if possible. Mindfulness to the extent necessary for insight, as it says. Mindfulness, awareness, which simply feels, senses, and sees what is right now. Without identification without getting lost in the stories, the drama that usually come together with these hindrances, without too much attachment, without too much condemnation or judgment. And in case we do hold on with attachment or we do judge and condemn, which we often do, then that's 
what mindfulness is and is aware of. Now there's attachment. Now it's gone. Now there's condemning. Now it's not. Again, that simple. And this, of course, will be difficult each and every time we do get lost in the content, in the drama of these emotions and hindrances. Then we experience them as dense, as solid, as permanent, as if they were going to stay forever. As something which I am. It's not a passing experience. I am it. But this relationship changes immediately as soon as we are mindful, aware, and in touch with the constantly changing, impermanent nature of this obstructing, hindering feelings. As soon as we look and sense with awareness, we recognize they come and go all by themselves like clouds in the sky. We don't say, okay, now sleepiness. It comes and conditions come together. We don't hear some noise that we don't like and then we said, okay, I think I should get really irritated at that person. It doesn't happen like that. It's not because we wish to have those hindrances. They come about. And then, no matter what we do, we try to keep them, we try to get rid of them, or we ignore them, or no matter what, eventually they go away. If you think you're here about 24 hours or 26 hours, if you think of all the feelings and emotions and all the stuff that has come through heart and mind, I assume, I don't know, Where has it gone? It came and it left. And it was replaced by the next, maybe, you know, five in a row that you didn't like. But it comes and goes. The great yogi Tilopa sang for Naropa in his song of Mahamudra. Just as the clouds floating through the sky have no roots, no home, so do the distinctive thoughts and feelings floating through the heart and mind. They appear according to their causes and conditions. They move, change, and disappear when it's their time. And we, our job is to remain as mindful and aware as we can, as present, unshaken as possible. There's nothing we need to do for or against them. They come by themselves and they leave by themselves. And we see clearly that these so-called hindrances, these mind states, do not belong to us. They're not in our control. They're not mine. They're not I or me. And when we feel into it even deeper, out of the silence of mind, we see that there really isn't anyone, no one behind who could be the owner. And we recognize the inner freedom that has always been here. So I could stop here, except sometimes, quite often, it's not that easy at all. We're not that mindful. We do identify with these hindrances. 
we do get lost in them. At that time, when we remember at all, there's certain remedies which can help us to get clear. And I really want to set this piece apart, and I think the first piece is really important if you can remember it. Really, essentially, there is nothing we need to do when we're present, when we see them, we're in contact with them, we're aware of what is going on, they come and they go all by themselves. And we're just seeing their impermanent nature, their unpleasant nature, whatever it is. That's all. But often we can't do that. When sense desire overwhelms us, it can be helpful to reflect, especially when it comes a lot. There's sort of phases when we have difficulty with sense desire. To reflect on the fact that our body will get old, decays, and dies. Helpful to reflect on impermanence, not just of the hindrances, but in a more general way, you know, because sense desire often is connected to the body, our body, or other bodies. To remember, it's as Ashley Brilliant says, inside every older person is a younger person wondering what happened. That's for people over 40 or 50, I'll understand. It's like the Japanese poet Santok. Santoka Taneda says in his poetical, rather dry way, beautiful spring has arrived next to the cemetery. When we're acutely aware of impermanence, we're willing to let go much quicker, much easier. It can also be very helpful to reflect on the fact that what we desire, what we wish to possess, that too is impermanent. It won't last. Even if we get it, it's not going to last. And even the satisfaction we'll get from it, or we may get from it, won't last that long. What's really helpful, if we actually do it, is to observe and feel over and over how it is when desire is present, and then if you remember, to see how it feels when desire is absent, when it's not here. To actually familiarize with how it feels in both those states, I find very interesting. Because when desire is there, we somehow see something positive in it because of the pleasant object desired. And we don't notice, as I said before, how restless it is, how unpleasant it is. When at another point where we really, without desire whatsoever, look at how the mind feels, think, oh, okay, this is different, very different. And to get to know those, both those states, very helpful. We see why desirelessness is praised. We see what true contentment means. We experience the relief, the ease, the peace. So instead of going through the whole trip 
necessary in order to fulfill our desire, sometimes we can simply let go. And desire, because of its own impermanent nature, will fade all by itself, and we're relieved. It simply takes practice. And uh, in my case, I have to say, it takes a lot of practice. And over and over, it takes actual willingness to let go. Oscar Wilde admitted, I can resist everything except for temptations. And that's the trouble with desire. When aversion and hatred overcome us, first of all, it's extremely helpful and important not to judge and condemn ourselves for having it. An inner atmosphere of loving kindness of metta and, and best metta for oneself can be very helpful there. If we can find enough inner space and awareness to do it, to be somewhat forgiving to ourselves. Or else, if we can be present with some awareness and a gentle, not condemning attitude, it's pretty good. Even aversion, ill will, comes and goes all by itself. We can also reflect on karma. That's a Buddhist approach. When we have difficult, unpleasant experiences in life, it's nothing else than the result of our own activities in the past, our own actions in the past the inner tendencies we ourselves created in the past. So there's no reason to react with hatred and aversion towards others. They're only uh, triggering something we created ourselves. You need to have a Buddhist view to apply this one. Otherwise, it doesn't make so much sense. Number three, sloth, torpor, drowsiness, tiredness. When they overcome us, it's important to first make peace with it. You say, okay, it's unpleasant, maybe it's not what I want. You know, they keep on speaking about wakefulness and all that, and here I go, nodding away. Then, with the remaining 5% of awareness, or however much there is left, and actually study and explore what this state is like. You know, it's a strange thing. You know, is it the kind of darkness that covers the eyes? Or is it some sort of clouds in the brain? Or is it like an energy hole? There's something we feel when we're drowsy. What is it? How do we know we're drowsy? It's a very strange phenomenon. To look at it with the remaining mindfulness. As soon as we're okay with it, we can also do some things about it. And sometimes they help, sometimes they won't. Taking some deep in-breaths sometimes helps get some more oxygen. Opening our eyes, not looking around, but keeping the eyes open so light comes in. Sometimes looking into bright light if there is one. If you're very, very drowsy, sometimes standing helps. And please do try standing. You can st- 
stand here in the hall. It's okay. Make sure you stand in a way that's quite solid. And if, it's, if you stand because you're sleepy, please keep your eyes open. We don't want you to fall asleep standing. In fact, if you're so sleepy that you fall asleep standing, please sit down again. Otherwise, you know, stand for 10 minutes or whatever when you feel sort of refreshed. You can sit again or stand for a whole 40 minutes. It's fine, too. You can do some faster walking meditation when you have a sort of longer, drowsy stretch. That can be helpful. Also, if you're often drowsy, make sure to be moderate with eating. And when all of this doesn't help and we keep on falling asleep over and over throughout the day, we might need some more sleep, you know, or have a nap at lunch. When restlessness and worry gets us during sitting, sometimes our tendency is to, to squirm and wiggle and move around and, you know, shift a little, hoping it's getting better. In the attempt to avoid this unpleasant intensity. What's really helpful, though, is in this case to sit completely still. And rather than resisting the unpleasantness, to let go, to really relax within, to give up, to surrender. Like uh, Jack Cornfield suggests, you know, you say, okay. I'm willing to be the first yogi or yogini who will die from restlessness. Take me. It's like giving up, not fighting against it. Makes it a lot easier. Emphasize the outbreath, the letting go, the relaxing rather than the struggling. And sometimes it's better to return gently but decidedly to the breath. But sometimes this creates too much pressure and then it can be more helpful to open up the awareness. You know, make your awareness, your mindfulness big to include all of the restless body and mind. Like restlessness is usually big, so make your mind big. You can even um, open mindfulness to hearing so there's more of a a space and the restlessness is not uh, resisted so much. Same uh, is true in, when restlessness comes during walking. Don't walk away. It's not going to last forever. It may last until you hear the gong, but that, then it'll go. Stay with it. Sometimes it suddenly goes, and you get very calm. If we walk away, we miss that change and the possibility for other things to come. When skeptical doubt torments us, the most important, of course, is to recognize the doubt as doubt. Otherwise, we're at its mercy. doesn't mean that we should be uncritical. We do want to decide for ourselves whether this meditation, whether this practice is helpful and suits us or not in our life. But maybe it's more helpful to do that at the end of the retreat, or a few days even after it's over, 
The most unhelpful moment for this is a difficult, unpleasant meditation period. It's not a good time to think about whether this is something that's helpful in our life. When we recognize doubt, we simply need to not believe the doubt, not buy into it, and especially not to take any consequences, at least for the moment, not to act on whatever it says. And sometimes all that is needed is a quick change of inner climate, five or ten minutes of inner stillness and clarity, and right away we think, oh, don't the Tibetans do this three-year retreat? Maybe I should do a three-year retreat. (laughs) We also don't need to buy into this one right away. Eventually you can. Doubt, when unrecognized, can be disastrous. Doubt, when recognized and seen through, is completely harmless. All these antidotes can be very helpful, but only to a limited extent. Jack Confield writes, The use of antidotes is like the use of plaster, while awareness and gentleness opens the wound and heals it really what is asked of us. The most effective means in retreat against the hindrances is the development of collectedness, of steadiness of mind. That's exactly what we're doing here. We need to do that with the steady application of effort to be with the present experience, with the breath, with the walking, with the hearing as we expand objects of awareness, the taste when we're eating, over and over and over again, really to make contact with the experience and to hold, to sustain the contact with the experience with as much continuity as possible. And that's the only way to make focus and collectedness grow. We may not like this thing so much about continuity because we, you know, we work so hard and we want a break. You know. And yet, and it's not us who made this up, it's a kind of a lawfulness, it's the continuity that builds steadiness, focus. Very helpful. When our collectedness, our commitment, our interest deepen in this way, something very interesting begins to happen. The hindrances begin to disappear or the frequency of their arising gets less. Temporarily, that is, for the duration of that collected, concentrated, focused state of meditation, they get suppressed, put away, and we're able to see things much deeper, much more clearly. And insight and wisdom become possible. This is one good reason why we come to retreats, why we need retreats, even though the hindrances are likely to be back in our daily life, when the calm, the collectedness, the depth of meditation weakens, But 
In the retreat, we have seen, we have learned, we have understood what we might perhaps never have seen in daily life. And that's one of the real fantastic benefits of retreat. It's not really about this often quite pleasant feeling of wholeness that we can have and that can come when there's collectedness or the feeling of calm or happiness, which can be quite healing, but to which we also can easily get attached. It's about being rid of the hindrances for a period of time so we start to see more clearly and we start to understand the workings of our mind and the nature of things in a way that can be very liberating. Definitely, permanently, the hindrances cannot be uprooted by collectedness, by concentration and absorption, but only through insight or wisdom. Yet, whenever the hindrances are not operating, even temporarily, then heart and mind show their true face, where attachment and desire is absent. There's deep contentment, and we can easily let go, and our innate generosity shines through. Where ill will, aversion is absent, there's gentle acceptance, and our basic all good nature radiates as kindness, as compassion, as sympathetic joy. Whenever sloth and torpor have disappeared, the mind is clear, is radiant, is full of energy and awake. When restlessness and worry fall away, our heart is still and rests in deep peace. And when doubt disappears, we can settle into the here and now, into this, our reality, with great trust, and feel at home. Quite awake, loving and compassionate, one with ourselves and with life. As Shinsho says, whatever road I take, I'm on my way home. Sit quietly just for a minute. 